Father, we love you. I'm reminded of the words of David. And he said, Father, I'll not give you anything which costs me nothing. Lord, our praise cost us something. Remind us, Father, that, that we can only praise because it costed you something. Namely, your son, Jesus. We've not assembled here, God, to look good or smell good or shake hands, God, and greet those we've seen and not, we've not seen. God, we've come for one thing alone, and that is to glorify the name of Jesus, that he is the name of above every other name, and that he has, he has taken the, the keys of the hell and the grave and death, Lord, and has submitted it to himself, and that he is the sole author, the owner of all things, that all things are under him, Lord. And we lift them up because there's no other name, there's no other thing, there's no other experience in life that we find more valuable than our Jesus. We bless that name in this house today. We bless that name in this house. We bless you, Jesus. Thank you for stripes, for nails, but thank you for a stone that was rolled away. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. 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 I want to ask you this morning, if the Lord forgave you, would that be enough? If he just forgave you, would that be enough for you? Or would forgiveness and eternal life be enough? Would you be okay with being forgiven and living eternally but never being in his presence? What, what would be okay for you? I don't know as I, I've thought through this sermon, I, I'll be honest with you, you know if you've, you've come here, I'm, I don't like saying things everyone's already said. I like to re-engage the text differently. It's so easy to preach the cross and to preach the tomb because those things preach themselves. All I got to do is shut up and get out of the way and just proclaim the scriptures. We can have church if I just read the gospels. We can be done with that. But there's something more that I want to hone in today. And it's not that I don't want to talk about the resurrection or the crucifixion. I want to talk about something that brings it together. It's funny that these three things, much like the Trinity, bring completion. Today, I want to talk to you about the veil. The veil is not a concept we hear most often, but it's something so significant. And as I begin to study it this last week, I begin to realize, Lord, I need to know more about this veil. Because I truly believe that in our lives, we have... Um, a need of a cross for us to die on. We all have a cross that we are to claim. We all have tombs that God has resurrected us from, no doubt. Some of y'all have heard your stories, and I thank God that he pulled you from the tomb. But I also know that we all also have veils that we hide behind. And can I tell you that forgiveness is not enough New life is not enough if I don't get to experience the presence of God with that. I'm not okay with being forgiven and living forever if I don't get to go to heaven and be in his presence forevermore. Presence matters. Presence matters. If you've ever been around a father who forgave you, but it didn't feel like he forgave you, you know presence matters. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven. Lord, I long that you teach us this morning. If I'm just being honest, Lord, you know, I want to be exhortational, but I pray, God, I pray uniquely in this moment. I pray you give me an anointing of discipleship that I might teach your people. Father, for those who are far off from you who don't know, God, the power of the cross, or maybe they do and they've forgotten, maybe they've traded you for different things. I pray, God, your word will do what I cannot. 
Lord, I can't claim to lead any man to Christ on my own anyway, Father. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that any of those things happen. But I just want you to know, Lord, I submit to you. I submit my heart to you, my lips to you, my mind to you. And I pray that all of us do the same. Let your word teach us. Show us, God, how we walk out of here, Father, in a different way, with a different signature on our life, so that the whole world might know, not just today on Easter, but on every day, God, that we, we inhabit their presence, that we bear the presence of the Almighty. And that would be a change, a game changer for the life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me this morning in Matthew 27, 45 through 54. This is the account of the, of the crucifixion. It involves all three major elements that we celebrate on this resurrection morning. Matthew 27, 45 through 54 says this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. This morning I want to talk to you about what I know to be a significant topic. The veil is something that I've not heard a lot, um, or if I have, it's been in more uh, doctrinal teachings, but I think it's relevant today. I think it's relevant because um, the Gospels, all three of them, as soon as Jesus dies, they point straight to that. The first thing they talk about is the veil tore, the veil tore. Why is it that it's that important? Why does it matter that the veil tore? Who cares that the veil tore? We're forgiven. Jesus died. He paid for our sins. I should be good. What, what, what matter does it, does, it, does it make to me that some veil and some temple tore? That's what we want to find out. I know, again, for sure that the cross is important. I know that the tomb is absolutely instrumental in a new life. You and I, we could not function and have compatibility and love each other if you didn't have new life. New life is essential for me to love you when it is difficult for you to be loved and vice versa. We need new life. And so this morning I want to talk about the problem that the veil reminds us of. I want to talk about the plan that the veil spoke of. And I want to talk about the, the provision that the veil pointed to. The first thing, like I said, the first thing that happens when Jesus gives up the ghost and cries out loud, all three gospels say immediately that the veil tore. This was the first supernatural sign that we see. And if I know anything about scripture at all, that first means a lot in scripture. Whenever you see something first, that is priority. And so what we see is that immediately the curtain is tore from top down, meaning God did that. So why is it so important? Because you got to understand is that Matthew understands that the veil is significantly important to the, the Jews. The veil has been a long-standing symbol that you are not worthy to go into the presence of God. Now, you can call him Lord, you can call him Yahweh or Adonai or whatever you want, but at the end of the day, you don't get an invite to come into his presence. And so now that the veil is torn, he understands we finally get to go where no man was able to go unless he was going down there once a year, not even representing himself, but representing the whole nation, pointing to who Christ would be. And so no man was fit. 
No man deserved to go in. And so when we see that, that behind this veil, what the power of it was, was it wasn't just the presence of God. You and I, we walk into someone's uh, um, uh, room or their, or their the building or their house, and we might be in their presence. But until you get that face-to-face, you don't know what it's like to engage that person. In fact, if you've ever been around a popular person or a celebrity or whatnot, it wasn't until you engaged them face-to-face did you say that we talked, I know them? Because if you were just in the building, mm, hear me, it's not enough to just be in the building. It's not enough to just be in the building. He's made a way for you to see him face to face. And he's asking you this morning, have you sought my face? Have we looked at each other? When you look at Christ, here's what happens. You, you instinctively know what you're not. You know what you lack. You know what you've done. Because there's a holiness that brings a conviction upon us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. Here we have um, Adam and Eve, and they have just sinned, and the Lord has pronounced his judgment upon them. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back it up. I'm, I'm, I'm way ahead of myself. Um, uh, they just sinned, and he's looking for Adam. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Who hid themselves? It wasn't God. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees, the things they were comfortable with, the things that didn't judge them. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, just the sound of you. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice the situation that man has sinned and God is still walking, looking for him. We always think that because because I've sinned, God is not searching for me when the opposite is true. He's asking, where are you? Well, you know what I've done. I, I understand if you don't want me around. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, where are you? You're not in the place that you used to be. I left you somewhere and you found lesser things. And now you, you've abandoned me. I've not abandoned you. And so here a man realizes that his iniquity, in contrast with God's holiness, has caused him to distance himself. He distanced himself. The prophet Isaiah said this when he wrote in Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But Scott Brandon, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It's not what I wanted, Scott. It's not what I chose. He said, It was your iniquities that made a separation. And it is your sins that have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Wow. That he does not hear. That, that, that you could do something that would cause the distance that it was you. It wasn't him walking around high and mighty and, and all those things that he could claim easily. But he's walking in the garden. He's walking in the places that are common to your life. And he says, where are you? Oh, I've distanced myself from you because... I realize I'm not like you. He says, for this reason, you've hid your face from me, and I can't even hear you no more. From the time of the garden to the, the time of the crucifixion in Jesus, what we see and we're reminded of is that there's a separation. There's a, there's a barrier kept man from being in the presence of God. Have you ever, you ever had that barrier with somebody walk into the room and it's just there? You know what I mean? And you just, you just don't want to, you just kind of go. Have you ever, had a, you ever had a family get together and there was a barrier in the room and you're just avoiding that person? Is that nobody? Man, look at all these families that are restored. Bless Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> nobody knows what tension is. Thank God you guys got in-laws like mine. They are wonderful to be around. We feel that tension, don't we? You ever been mad at your spouse and 
and felt distant? No, no, not y'all. Not at all. See, the problem is with God is that it's not that we're distant because he's angry. He's distant because we're guilty. And the closer you walk with God, the more you'll understand that that distance is really a you thing and not a him thing. But in this moment, we see exactly what's happening. Even now, for us, God is not distant with us. He's distant because we're still running to things less than him. He wants, to, he wants us to draw close. You've been battling with sin. You've been battling the decision to follow him. And but for whatever reason, you've chose lesser things. And the reason why you won't go back to God is because you feel the conviction of your decisions. You don't feel the conviction of his holiness and say, well, I'm not like him. He's not good enough for me or he won't accept. No, God will accept you. He will love you. He will forgive you. That's why we celebrate a cross. That's why we celebrate a tomb. But there's still this matter of presence that we have to understand. That shame that we feel, the tension that we know, because we've chosen something lesser. And even though God in all of this knows that he can't be among the people like he wanted to, the Lord, I'm sorry, be a part of the people like he wanted to, he wanted to be among his people. And so he tells Moses, I I have a plan. I have a plan. I got to be among my people because that's my people. They're called by my name. And I don't care how far you go. I don't care what you do. At the end of the day, I desire to be in their midst. And so he talks with Moses. Exodus 25, 8 says this, and let them make me a sanctuary, a way, a proper way that they can approach me that I may dwell in their midst. Can I tell you that God does not need you? He does not need you. He does not need your sacrifice. He does not need your worship. He does not need your praise. But God does desire you. And he could abandon Israel right here and start it all over again. He could abandon creation and start it all over again. But he says, no, I want to dwell in their midst. And so God came down to create a provision, a plan that he might restore with us again. Exodus 26, 31 through 34 says simply this. These are the instructions that speak to the veil. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony. That's an important piece of furniture right there. In there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place and the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony, the most holy place. He wants to dwell with us, but there are some things between him and us that we established. And so God has now saw a plan because you couldn't, nor would you, seek to be in his presence And now he has come to inhabit yours. Let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. So when you came into the tabernacle, there was an outer court, the first curtain that you walked through, and then the second curtain you walked through was where the priests, they minister at the the altar of incense and the table of shoe bread or presents, uh, and then the uh, the candlesticks. And so as they're ministering as priests, then there is this last veil right here. This is the veil that we're talking about. And this veil was only able to pass once a year by the high priest, and he was only permitted to go because he was going in to ask for forgiveness of all of Israel's sins that they did not know. All the sins that they did know was made outside the outer court, but all the sins that they did not know, he allowed him to come in once a year, and the priest was only permitted to go in because he was typifying who Christ would be. Because not even the high priest was worthy enough to come into the tabernacle. Now, what I want you to know is, is that several times in Scripture, the Lord is constantly saying, there I will meet with you, there I will meet with you, because this Ark of the Covenant has a, a, a mercy seat, and that is where the blood is shed, so that when God looks down actually inside this, this Ark of the Covenant, there's the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are your condemnation. God looks at the Ten Commandments, and he looks at you, and he realizes you're unfit. You didn't live up for it. And so what he does is he puts it in the Ark of the Covenant, and then he puts the seat on top of it, and he covers it in blood. So when God looks down, he sees blood. He doesn't see condemnation. 
That's what he's trying to do. Because if that wasn't there, he would have to look at the Ten Commandments and say, all you have to die because you're unholy, unfit, and you're not what I made you to be. But he says, I'm going to make a mercy seat so that when I look down, I'll see someone sacrifice. And it will remind me of the plan that I have in place for you. And so they come in once a year. As he came in, I want you to understand is that there were nine categorical uh, rituals and, and, and routines and sacrifices and purifications that the high priest had to do. And he had to do all of these things just to get through, lest he would die when he went in right away, to get in through the, the, the veil. But the rest of the priest, they can they could do all of the things God told them to do and still not be able to come past the veil. Listen to me this morning. God has given us instructions concerning his word. But just because you obey those, in, those instructions does not mean you can have fellowship with him. Does not mean that it guarantees you that those, that those works that you did means you have a right of access. The only access that you have to the throne room and to the presence of God is not your doing. In fact, our doing is only a demonstration of our thankfulness for what Jesus did for us. But here these priests are reminded day after day after day that they can keep the whole law and never be in the presence. That they can be forgiven but never be in the presence. That they can walk with favor and blessing but never be in the presence. And I tell you, we can teach you to be the perfect Christian. But what good is it if you never get into the presence of God? What does it matter? What good is that? I got to get into the presence. So they would pass the first, uh, the first curtain. Go ahead and show the next picture. As they passed the first curtain, you would see that they would come in. And if you were just a normal Jew, you'd come in and you'd, Ask for sacrifice for whatever sin you committed over your family or whatever that might be. And then as they stayed there, perhaps they could look past the second curtain where only the priest would go. But the priest had to make sacrifices for themselves. They had to wash their faces. Right there in the brazen laver, the brazen laver was, was like, was like, was like um, a, a mirror. And their job was to wash their hands and their faces so that way as they looked into it, they would be clean. They would have something to tell them if they were clean enough to go inside. And so these priests would go in, and as they would go in, they would see these different layers and levels. But a Jew might be on the outside and realize, I'm never going to get into that no matter how many sacrifices I offer. A priest would say, no matter how many laws I keep, I'll never get into the veil, no matter what. And the third curtain reminded the high priest that your works may get you close but they'll never get you in. Can I tell you, you may do the right things and still be wrong. That is the lie of the church. Hear me, when I say church, that's a lowercase c. The lie of the church in terms of culture and tradition is that we can teach you to live right and make you think that you're right, but that's not the truth. Right living comes from right thinking. You can't have right thinking from right living. It's not a matter of doing, it's a matter of believing. You see, as a sinner, we, are, we sin because we are a sinner. We, we, we don't sin, or we're not a sinner because of the things that we do. We're a sinner because of who we are. And so here we're, 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 we're talking about the very thing that reminds us that we can't work enough. We can't do enough. There's, there's, there's not enough prayer meetings we can come to, although I encourage you to go to every one of them. I encourage you to read your word. I encourage you to pray for people. But I want you to know that at the end of the day, those things are not going to allow you to have presence with God. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, and I offer it to you through the word of God and through the blood of Christ. But at the end of the day, if it's not got you into the presence of God, I sold you short. We must get into the presence of God. We must get into the presence of God. Even if sometimes the presence of God makes us feel weird, and it should. Because the presence is there to say things are not where they should to be. Where, where are you, how are you supposed to be living? How are you supposed to be talking? And that presence is letting you know that you're not all together where I want you to be just yet. 
as they looked through the veil, the Jew would see this emblem on the front of the veil, and the veil reminded them that separation is not there because of God, but because of them, because on the front of the veil, you would see a cherubim was a large angel. And that angel would remind them back to the day when Adam sinned. And when he sinned, the Lord said, we have to drive him out of the Garden of Eden. And to keep him from coming back into the presence of God, let me put a, a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword that says, you shall not pass. And as, as he looked at this, he realized that man was not denied access to God's presence because of God's um, anger, but rather man's unfaithfulness. And so what do we do? Because the great thing about the veil is simply this, is the veil is also not a gate. The veil is also not made of iron or brass or silver or gold. It's not a permanent structure. It's a, it's a, a movable structure. It's a temporary structure. And so there's a provision in the fact that the veil was made of needlework, that it was made of cloth, and that it was movable. Can I tell you, in Solomon's temple, that all the divisions that were there, large pillars, 15 to 20 feet tall with no seams whatsoever at all, all these things gave the structure of Solomon's temple, but only one thing kept the presence of God, and that was a movable, a movable, a temporary veil. So what we see is that the veil's makeup tells us that one day it will no longer be needed but most importantly, it will tell you who would remove it. When we talk about Jesus and him dying on the cross, I'm thankful for that forgiveness. I'm thankful for that blood that heals me, that washes me clean, that allows me to be before the, the Godhead and the Father, knowing that I've been fully justified and fully cleansed. And I'm also thankful for the tomb that gives me a brand new life because my wife needs a brand new Scott Brandon. She doesn't need an old Scott Brandon. She needs a new Scott Brandon. And you need, a, you, you need the new Scott Brandon too. And I need the new Pastor Randy, right? Because God knows if I went to the old Pastor Randy... Or just Randy, you know what I mean? Hopefully it wasn't an old Pastor Randy. That, that we could not love each other. That we could not walk in agreement. But I need to know how I can get into this place of the presence of God because there's only certain things you can find in the presence of God. There's only certain things that you can get in the presence of God. There is a deliverance. There is a freedom. There is a joy. There is a strength. There is a love. There is a peace. You can't find those things outside the presence. You can read about those things and become a theologian and historian, but until you enter the presence of God, you'll never know those things to be true. In fact, that's what's so great about a testimony. Testimonies are powerful. You know why? Because they're the sharing of presence. It wasn't just something I believed and happened in a, a weird experience that I can't really explain. There's a presence inside of me. There's a power inside of me that I encountered because I walked into the presence. So let me tell you about who this veil would, would speak to. It would speak to Jesus in a way you may have never seen him before. So the veil was made of a three colors. We see this consistently all throughout Scripture. It was made of blue, which was on the top and purple, which was in the middle, and scarlet, which was on the bottom, or red. And as we see these three colors, we have to ask ourselves, what is the significance? Uh, I, I would encourage you to do a study of, of colors in the Bible. They're incredible. Um, you will find most often and most evident that the color blue represents the color of grace. As I, as I thought about this some years ago when I first discovered it, uh, I walked outside and I realized that the sky is blue. And I realize there's some places in life that I tried to escape God's grace. But can I tell you that there's nowhere on earth that you can ever escape the blue sky? There's nowhere on earth that you can escape the grace of God. The grace of God also speaks to the fact that Jesus came down from heaven. He didn't have to come. But he came on his own volition, on his own desire. And the fact that he came was grace to us. And so blue was on the top. It speaks of a, a, a grace that you can't escape, although you can reject it. 
God came, he descended from heaven. But then there's this red on the bottom. And what does the red mean? Red, without question, is the color of man. We can be different colors on, in, our, in our pigment, but at the end of the day, what matters is most is that red is, is the color that defines man. Red is not only the color that defines man, but red was also the color they used, um, or actually the, the worm that they used to, to uh, make this red color was a rare worm. Um, but it was an explosively vivid red. And what we see is this, is that worm, what is a worm? What, how low is a worm? Can I tell you that your Jesus came and made himself so low, so beneath us, that he came to serve us here, the king of glory, and he gives his life to be our servants, to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Job even says this. He says, man is nothing but a worm. And so here we see these colors of blue and red. But if you take blue and red and you put them together just w- without any fading at all, what you see is a contrast. Blue and red does not go well. Have you ever painted a room blue and red? It's, it's not a pretty color. These things are not, they're not harmonious. What blue and red needs is a mediator. You see, if blue is depicting God and red is depicting man, there must be a mediator that must be fully God and fully man. And what we see clothed in royalty is Jesus the Christ, the mediator of God and the man. That's who Christ is. Purple is always mentioned in between the two. In fact, for red to look up and even see blue, he has to see it through the eyes of purple. He has to see it through the eyes of Christ. So just as Jesus came from above and represented the grace of God, that he would descend, yet also was born in the flesh and became a man, that he might die a man's death, he was, he was purple in that he was fully man and fully God. But whenever they, the Jews saw the veil, what he did not know and what we know now is simply this, that he was looking at the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. The one who being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was the one of whom John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah said of him this, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom hit hide, uh, who men hide their faces and he was despised. And he, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and surely he has cared our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the author of Hebrews says, this is the same person that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Through his flesh. Why is that important? Because until you understand that Jesus didn't just, he could have just died. He could have just died. A simple death. He could have rose from the dead and rolled the tomb away. We would have celebrated. But Jesus went through the worst scourging probably known to man. And every time he ripped his flesh, he knew that you needed it because there would be days you'd be driving down your car, driving in your car down the road, and you're pleading for God to show up. And you're asking him where he's at in your marriage. And you're asking him where he's at in your finances. And you're asking him where he's at in your health. And you're saying, oh God, if I just knew that you were here in this moment. And I would remind you that he was taking stripes upon his back so his presence could come to that car that day. And when you're in your room at night and you're praying over your spouse. Or maybe you have a lost child. And you know that... You can muster one more day. You can go on one more day 
If I could just feel the presence of God, can I tell you that that presence came at the cost of at least 40 stripes or more upon his back. 40 lashes upon his back. And for you and I to not seek the presence of God is for you and I to reject the sacrifice of God. Let Hear me clear. The presence is what we're after. Forgiveness allows us to get there, and life allows us to experience forever, but the presence of God is the goal. When we come down to these altars, we ask for forgiveness, and we walk away in new life, but it's because we experience the presence of God that's confirmed in our heart and our life that he was here. And that confidence and that strength allows you to walk in a way of true strength and true wholeness, knowing that he met me. How do you know, Pastor Scott? Because I met him face to face. I wasn't just in the room with him. I know he met me. Have you ever been in a place that the Holy Spirit came down, his presence was real in that moment? And so here we see that the cross was the price, the resurrection was the life, but the veil was for the presence. Can I just speak something into our life right here? Every time we have church, you ever been in a church service and it feels a little weird? The Holy Spirit moves and you're not real sure about what's happening. Can I tell you that in that moment, there's a presence We cannot be so quick to judge and push it back because when we do, we're saying those lashes didn't really matter. That presence that's here right now, God, I appreciate that presence, but since I don't understand it, I'd rather go back to the trees where it feels more comfortable and more common. The Lord's like, no, 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 you you don't understand. The reason why it feels strange to you is because I feel strange to you. You've only had so much of me. You've only pressed in so much of me. I'm trying to plunge you into the depth of who I am, but you just want just enough to make your life comfortable so you can have your American dream. But that's not what I'm here to do. I gave my back for you. I gave my back for you. Surely I could have some kind of persistence and pursuit that you could press into the presence of God. And the presence is not just for you. For you and I, when we come to church, what happens is this is that as we pursue and as we press in, someone else who doesn't know what that presence is, they now experience that presence. They didn't pray for that presence. They didn't call for that presence. But now they're experiencing the presence of God because you and I were pressing in and pursuing in, and all of a sudden that presence begins to call them and draw them. I've had people call me and say, Pastor Scott, I was praying. Or Pastor Scott, I was, I was in a place and they were praying over me, and something come over me I, I'd never known before. I didn't know who this Jesus was, but all of a sudden I'm starting to cry. I wake up in the morning, I'm crying. I don't know what it is. I've got a peace that can't, can't be explained. But there's something that's weird about me, Pastor Scott. And I say, it's not weird. It's the presence of God. This is the presence that you and I are so thankful for. As the band comes back up, I want to talk about this last little thing here. In Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. It says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. They were never able to provide perfect cleansing. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. Worshippers would have been purified once and for all, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Can I tell you that right living or living right with no presence only reminds you and condemns you of your sin. We can live instructionally by the word of God, but until you have the presence of God confirming those things inside of you, until you're living that way to express your love for him, you and I are only reminding ourselves of how lost we are, of how needy we are. For right living comes from right thinking, not right thinking from right living. And so as we, as we ask Lord, as we ask the Holy Spirit to press into our life, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with this at all, if, if you don't know who Christ is at all, or perhaps Christ has been something distant from you, distant from you, And you've been telling yourself, I need to get my life right. I need to get straight. I know know the right way to live. I've not been living that way. 
and the Holy Spirit would say to you this morning is that I have not come to ask you to fulfill Levitical law. I've not come to ask you to get clean before you come. We don't clean our life up before we come. We don't live perfect just so we can keep Jesus. And we don't escape Jesus because the lifestyle is hard. And all those things, we're seeking his presence. We're seeking forgiveness. We're seeking reconciliation to the Father. We're seeking new life. My God, if those things don't come with presence, you don't got a hope in this world. If you don't got presence, you don't have a hope. Presence is what you need. Ask yourself, what is it that you need right now? What's your need? If the Lord stood before you today and he says, I'm going to give you what you ask for, what is it that you would ask for? Because without the presence of God, sleeping that in there, without him being in that moment, for you to know that I heard him, he spoke to me, he confirmed it in me, how do you know you have confidence? It's the peace that seals it into us. We read the word, we act in faith, that's true. But you and I know that presence is the thing that comes along and bears witness with our spirit. So today, let me ask you, if you're lost and you don't know what the presence of God is, where it's been a long time, today, today is the day of reconciliation. Today is the day of forgiveness. But I also want to draw you to one last thing. The Bible doesn't speak directly but indirectly to another veil that exists. And that other veil was, was really typified through the fact that as soon as Jesus died and the veil was torn, the priest, those people who had long-standing traditions, they knew how to go to church. They knew how to have church. They knew how to, how, how to have all the right things and do all the right things. But they realized that in all the, the earthquaking and the rock shaking, that somehow the veil was torn. And those priests went right back to sewing that veil right back up. Can I tell you that, that in our life, we too have veils. And when we have a veil, what we're doing is we're sewing the veil that he tore right back up. We keep God from his, his presence. Or we, we keep ourselves from his presence because we want to allow him past our own veil. What kind of veil are you talking about, Pastor Scott? Well, let me tell you, there are several veils that you and I have. We sow veils of self-love because we've been hurt too much. We don't want to be hurt that way again. And so to keep us from being hurt, we sow a veil up that keeps just our presence in and everyone's presence out. We have a veil of self-pity. That, that veil simply is like this. We live a victimized life because we love people to feel sad for us and feel bad for us, but we don't embrace the victorious life because that means risking it all over again. It means exposing ourselves all over again. We have a veil of self-trust because we've been failed time and time again. A self-admiration because we don't need the experience of not being valued again. A a veil of self-sufficiency because trusting in someone else other than me brings disappointment and a veil of self-content because only I know what I need. Can I tell you that I struggle myself with this. As I, as I studied this, I realized that I had a veil myself. So let me tell you this story. It's probably been about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I was at a church service and there was a guy there that was he was speaking words into people and so uh, he just had a gift of prophecy and and um, me and Julie were there and and as I stood up because he says there's about a hundred of us there it's just a bunch of directors and um, and I'm standing there and they said we want you to come down he's gonna pray over you and I'm literally like 10 feet from the guy and so as I step out to, to be praised, there's another guy in front of me, and he's in front of me, and then somehow the second guy comes, and somehow the third guy comes, and somehow the 
20th guy comes and, and I'm just here, right, right here, right next to him. And before I know it, I look around and it's just me and Julie. And I'm still waiting to allow God to speak into my life. And then when I finally get up there, the guy speaks to me and he says some frivolous things. Some things I'm thinking, what in the world? Why did I wait so long to hear something so simple? And here's what it did in me. I think it broke something in me to trust in God to move in the miraculous. Can I, I'm just being honest this morning. That when I see God move powerfully, I say, oh, God, I don't want to be hurt like I was hurt before. I, I trusted to hear something big, and something big never came. And so, God, if I'm being honest with you, I'd rather put you in a smaller box because smaller boxes come with smaller disappointments. If you don't mind, God, I'll allow my view to be small so that way my risk is small. And to trust you for something that makes me vulnerable is not really something I want to do because at the end of the day, God, I don't want to look at you any less. I don't know if you've ever been there before or not, but I know this, is that that was a veil for me. I realized I had to take that veil down. If I ever want God to make me dream bigger than my own brain can, can consciously understand, if I ever want to pray for and look for God to do something incredibly big, I got to take him out of that box that says it's okay for me to risk it again. You know, I wonder what Abraham went through when he, when he was called Abraham, the father of many, right? And then Jesus, or God gave him his son, and God asked him to take him to the top of the mountain and, and sacrifice his only son. I wonder in that moment if Abraham was like, Lord, if you, if you kill my son, you're going to destroy everything I thought about you because you promised me. You promised me, and then you fulfilled your promise, and, and then you're going to take it away. And I heard the Lord speak to me. He said, Scott, you got to trust me past the moments. Can you trust me past the disappointment? And I want to stop right here and simply say this. I want to ask you, when's the last time the church disappointed you? When's the last time... God disappointed you. When's the last time you prayed that prayer and it's never been fulfilled? And because of that, you minimize God and put that veil up and say, I'll not pray about these things, but these things that don't matter too much, those are the things that I'll be okay with. But these big things over here, I'll not trust him with those things. Really because I love him. Really because I don't want to be hurt by him any more than I already have. And so let me put up a veil that blocks him off the accesses of my life. Is that you? Or was it just me? Because I prayed about this message and the Lord just kept telling me, Scott, just remove the veil. Remove the veil. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I, I just want to make this simple and plain. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know His presence, I invite you to come. Right now, come. Right now, come. His back was shredded for you. Don't reject the blood. I'm waiting. We're not in a hurry. We're in no rush. If you know you've been hiding behind your veil, you know there's some things that you got to allow God in. You may not say it was God that hurt you. You may call it the church. You may call it a man. But somehow you've associated God with it. If you would say, Pastor Scott, I've got a veil that needs to come down, would you be so bold just to stand with me today? You got a veil that needs to come down. You got a veil that needs to come down. Yeah. 
There's many more. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm standing with you today. I'm standing with you. Let him do his work today. Let him do his work. Yes. Yes. Lord, we stand here this morning. We are not perfect people. On the contrary, Lord, we fail often. But God, we stand here today, God, declaring that we no longer hold on to the veil that hides us from you. Seeing how, God, you've removed the veil that kept us from experiencing you. I pray for my friends today, Lord, as we stand and surrender we trust you, knowing, God, that you will bring healing, that you'll bring hope, that you'll restore faith. I pray, God, for myself as I pray for all of them. God, give us the ability, God, to trust once again, to risk failure once again. God, to risk the fact that we might be hurt one more time. But, God, give us the strength to trust you with that hurt. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Would you all stand with me today? Not your normal Easter message, but let me tell you why it's so important. That presence is not just for here in this house, in this church. I know many of you will leave this church and go back to a job or go back to a marriage or go back to a home and there'll be a problem waiting for you. Maybe you left it just to come here. But when you go back to that problem, here's what you need to know. Is that the Lord does not look to fix your problems just for the sake of you. In fact, in Israel's day, whenever they were on the battlefield, they did not call and ask God to defeat their foes or deliver them from their, their enemies. What they did was simply go grab the Ark of the Covenant and brought the presence of God into their problem. So many times we just ask God to free us from our problems. But when's the last time you asked God to fill you with his presence so that his presence could inhabit the problem? That is why you're there. That is why you're in the situation that you're in. And so today, leave out of here knowing that his flesh was tore so you could be filled with the presence of God so that your problem had to deal with you holding the presence of God. I pray that today. Let me pray for you as you go. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray. These are your people. I ask, God, that you fill them to the brim with your spirit overflowing God and allow God your mighty powerful presence God not just to change and transform us but Father every step that we take Father every problem we walk into God let us be the transformational agent Lord that causes that problem to be resolved not because we're something great but God we're just obedient vessels God filled with your presence and your power Lord we love and we thank you God we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Amen, amen, amen.